And uh, I kind of got hung up in Deuteronomy 8 and spent almost the whole sermon there. But for a brief review, beginning in Matthew 5, we were in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So a qualification of being in the kingdom from heaven, the kingdom of God, is to be poor in spirit. And I think that we need to fully and thoroughly understand what that means. God took them into the wilderness to, to humble them, as it says in Deuteronomy 8. I'm not going back there today. It's where we went two weeks ago. And we must be humbled. We must become poor in spirit before we can be a part of the kingdom of God. Now, it does talk about the meek on down in verse 5, but I want to emphasize more today the poor in spirit. Because what it means is those who see their spiritual poverty, those who recognize that as human beings we are nothing and we can do nothing, as the Christ himself said, of myself I can do nothing. And we must come to recognize that on that level, neither can we. I mean, we've been given life, which we did not create ourselves. We were born into this world. And as a result of that, being alive, we grew up. And we can walk around upon the face of the earth, can't we? We can move our arms and our legs and our mouths. We can do things physically on the earth. We don't necessarily need help from God to go through physical life. Now, he is the sustainer of life, and he can squash us like bugs at any moment, if he so chooses. But just by the fact that we were given human life means that we can move around and do things, and people are doing things. Most of the things that people are doing today do not have the approval of God. Now, to do anything that has the approval of God, that is worthwhile, that is lasting, and has spiritual meaning, can only be done through Almighty God. Because spiritually, of ourselves, we can do nothing. Absolutely nothing. All our righteousnesses put together are nothing more than dirty, filthy rags, says Scripture. So we are utterly worthless, spiritually speaking, except through contact with God and through the value of that we can gain by His Spirit, His power, His might, His mind living in us. So anytime we rise in spiritual pride and begin to think that we're something or we know something or we're pretty smart or we're pretty valuable, we're treading on thin ice. Take heed when you think you stand, lest you fall. Now, most, if not all, who were in the church of God, the true church of God, here at the end time, are in violation of what I just said. We raised up ourselves in pride, thinking we had everything we needed. 
And there are those today who still maintain whole organizations of them, even large organizations of them, who think that they are Philadelphians and therefore have need of nothing. But they have it made. But they will go to safety and into the kingdom of God without a hitch. And having that attitude is something that automatically makes you one who has raised himself up in pride and thinks he has need of nothing and truly actually makes you a Laodicean rather than a Philadelphian as you view yourself. So this affects nearly everybody, doesn't it? Except those few who are willing to admit that they are still in need. Now what is the very first thing Messiah talks about when he begins to address his disciples here? You must be aware and be poor in spirit. Recognize your spiritual poverty. If you don't recognize that, there's no room for growth. If you don't recognize that, you're not going to be calling on anyone to help you. If you don't recognize that, you will not feel any need to be taught or guided or led in any way. Because why? You don't think you need it. So... Poor in spirit, or poverty-stricken, or recognizing your spiritual poverty, is the first key to beginning to obtain spiritual treasure. Treasure in heaven, an attitude of love and acceptance from God. Now, before continuing in that particular vein, I want to go to the antonym of spiritual poverty. Poverty. Because to understand spiritual poverty truly, we need to understand the opposite of it. So I want to hit a few scriptures. I could hit dozens, hundreds, frankly. But I want to just go through a few here. Let's start in Psalm 101. Psalm 101. And here I want verse 5. Well, verse 4, really. A proud or presumptuous heart shall depart from me. Anyone who is presumptuous or proud will depart from God. It is a truth. It's an axiom. It's an, inevita an inevitability that if we have that kind of attitude we ultimately, at some point or another, will depart from God. I will not know a wicked person. Now, if he turned his face from us and is not able to look upon us at this point in time, that is echoed right here. I will not know a wicked person. What does he say himself? You use my name, you use my reputation, you say you worship me, but in vain do you worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Now, the commandments of men and the way of Satan are wrapped up in pride. Whoso privately slanders his neighbor, him will I cut off. There is the ultimate punishment for gossip, for backbiting, 
for saying hurtful things about people. If you cut people off, and stabbing them in the back is certainly a form of cutting them off, then God says He will cut you off. And yet gossip and backbiting comes as easily to us as anything that is so natural, so easy. Him that has a high look and a proud heart will not I suffer, will not allow, will not permit to be in my kingdom, is what is implied. Proud is not something God likes at all. We have pride, it must go away, or we will go away. Chapter 138, verse 6. Though the eternal be high, yet has he respect to the lowly. But the proud he knows way off. He knows of them, but he keeps them way off, away from him. He does not want anyone with pride near him. Now, he is high, high as can be. But he does not despise those who have an attitude of lowliness, that is, of poverty. How do you feel as a human being if you're driving a 15, 20, 25-year-old beater of a car that smokes and rattles and clatters with bare tires, bad paint, and dirt all over it, and you in shabby clothes, and you pull up to one of the finer hotels in the world. And you see people there getting out of shiny new limos, and they're wearing 500 to 100 to 1,000, I guess a $500 cheap suit's cheap anymore. I'm wearing $40 ones myself. But maybe they're wearing two, $3,000 suits, getting out of these fine cars, having sparkling diamonds and glittering jewels all over them and wearing purses that are worth more than your car and your wardrobe, how do you feel under those circumstances? There have been times in my life where I've gone to some pretty fancy places and I felt really, really out of place. When we be, go before God and we recognize and understand His glory, His power, His might, His love, His kindness, His creative abilities, and all that He has done, shouldn't we feel just as shabby as a homeless person with a cart that pulls up in front of the five-star hotel? That's the attitude we ought to have. See, that was what God was working Job over for. He put the king of the children of pride, Satan, right on to Job and reduced him to nothing so that all of his pride, his vanity, his ego, and wealth, and children, wife, home, flocks and herds, everything was taken away. And his health was removed so that he was probably the most miserable man who has ever sat on the earth. Now, maybe the Messiah suffered as much or more in a short period of time. I don't know how long Job suffered 
But he had to have been, of all men at that point, most miserable. When you have boils all about your body and you can't stand or sit or lay down without putting pressure on a boil, you've got to be in terrible pain. When God got done with Job, the end of that chapter, Job had been made to see that he was in terrible spiritual poverty compared to the mighty God of the universe. First thing God did with Job when he set out to make him what he really ought to be was to reduce him to a state of mind of spiritual poverty. That's how important it was. That's what that book is all about. Let's go to Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57. Verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity, whose name is Holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God in all his glory in the sides of the north and his kingdom wishes to dwell with the contrite and humble. Those are the people he likes, the ones he likes to be around. And he will revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now, God is not going to revive the heart of most of the church here at the end. We understand there will be a 10% remnant who will respond to him and come to build the latter temple. But he resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. If we're going to receive the grace of God in the desert, as Isaiah says, we must be of a humble and contrite heart. And he will revive us. Now the church is about to die, isn't it? Spiritually speaking, and physically speaking, the church, before our very eyes, is dying. But God said he will revive the heart of the contrite ones. If you want revived by God, resuscitated, brought back to life, the the precondition is humility and meekness, contriteness, spiritual poverty. For I will not contend forever, neither will I be always angry, for the spirit should fail before me and the souls which I have made. We're going to get to the point that we're just about to lapse into utter death. God will let it go that far, and then he will revive the meek, the humble, and the contrite. He will let the proud die in their pride. Where did I want to go next? How did I get to Isaiah? I looked at the wrong column of scriptures. Uh, let's go to Proverbs 6. It's all right, it fit in anyway. I wanted to use that one for the positive side, that he will revive. But still in all, it talks about contrition and spiritual poverty. Proverbs 6. 
And here I want about verse 15. Well, let's start with 12 and a break in thought. A naughty person, a wicked man, walks with a presumptuous or a prideful mouth. He winks with his eyes, he speaks with his feet, he teaches with his fingers. He's giving all these bodily signs of pride, of vanity, of ego. In other words, someone who is not truly sincere, but is trying to put on a false front of being important or smart or whatever whatever direction they're coming from. Presumptuousness or pride is in his heart. He devises mischief continually. He sows discord. What creates discord, disunity, disharmony, confusion, of which God is not the author, in a group of people? Pride. says so right here. Anytime there is confusion, anytime there is contention, anytime there is division, pride is involved somewhere, because that's what creates it. Therefore shall his calamity come suddenly. Suddenly shall he be broken without remedy. These six things does the eternal hate. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. He's going to list six and then a seventh that are an absolute abomination to God. A proud look, first thing. Now, is it ironic at all that the God who could inspire this book would list in the Sermon on the Mount, if you will, the very first thing that is important to God is poverty of spirit, and then the very thing he lists back in Proverbs, because he has a better memory than you and me if we were writing a book, would be that he hates a proud look. Those two are diametrically opposed to each other, pride and poverty of spirit. A proud look, a lying tongue, Hands that shed innocent blood. Haven't we all broken all the Ten Commandments? Yes, we have. Have we shed innocent blood? You can say, well, I never have killed anybody. Sure you have. When you stab someone in the back with a knife physically, what does it do? Generally kills them. When you stab them in the back with words, hurt their character... You are killing them spiritually, harming their character. So we have hands that have shed innocent blood, don't we? There is no one here, I dare say, who has not at some point or another assassinated someone, spiritually speaking. That's worse than physical. And heart that devises wicked imaginations... Unreal fantasies, unrealities, expectations that have no basis. Dreamers, in other words. A false witness, let's see, feet that be swift and running to mischief. A false witness that speaks lies. And then the seventh, that is absolutely an abomination, he that sows discord 
among brethren. That comes so easily to us, doesn't it? It's such an easy sin to imbibe in, to sow discord, to create frustration and confusion among ourselves. And yet it is the thing God lists as something that is an abomination. An abomination is about as bad as you can get, isn't it? Witchcraft, demonism, presumptuousness are as witchcraft. And when we sow discord or create confusion and division among the brethren, what we are doing is idolatry because we are putting our opinion of that person ahead of God's judgment of that person. Anytime we rise in pride in anything, it is idolatry. Pride, by its very nature, is idolatry. Who started out with pride? Satan the devil. And his pride has brought down a third of the angels. And so far, unless God's plan intervenes and saves people, it has brought down essentially all of mankind. Just because he had a little pride that swelled into an idea that he had better ideas than God. And when we think we have better ideas than other, others, we are saying, ultimately, that we have better ideas than God. That's what pride is all about. See why he resists that and gives grace to the humble. Okay, let's see. Proverbs 16, verse 5. Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to the eternal. Isn't that what we just read or I tried to explain? Turn over here and it says it in so many words. Everyone that is proud in heart, in mind, in thought, in attitude is an abomination to the eternal. Though hand join in hand, he shall not be punished. We could gather our little crowd about us and all hold hands and say we're okay, but we will not go unpunished if we are proud. It's an abomination that God will not tolerate. There is no excuse, no reason, no purpose in pride. We defend ourselves very quickly, don't we, when we're criticized or when we're in some way brought short by our conduct, our thinking, our whatever it is, our dress, our manner, our way of being, how we do things. How do we react immediately upon any criticism? We get defensive. We defend our image of ourselves. We do not want anyone to think that we're not okay. Now, we may know in our hearts and our minds that we're not as okay as we would like to be, but we'd still like to think others think better of us than we know to be true, wouldn't we? So it's so easy for us to get defensive, and we all do it. We do not like to be criticized at all. We do not a bit like to be corrected. We do not, do not like to admit in any given spot or place or circumstance that there's something might possibly be wrong with us. Even though we're very quick to say, I'm not perfect, I know I'm not perfect, 
But, but we'll stand on our pride. As I said before, how many people do you know that if you make any guidance, any correction, any suggestion to, will say, oh, thank you. I truly appreciate that. That sounds like iron sharpening iron to me, and I am so desirous of becoming just like God that anything you can say to me that would point out how I'm not like God gives me encouragement, strength, and energy to try to be like God. How many of you have ever heard that speech from people that you've tried to guide, lead, direct, correct, or whatever? Immediately, when anything is said about us that might be a little awry, we get this immediate lump right here, don't we? I've lived with that a lot in my life, trying to defend my image of myself. And we all do it. Because we still have pride and do not have fully an attitude of spiritual poverty of absolute humility and meekness, recognizing the power of God as opposed to what we are. And we like to compare ourselves among ourselves. And it is the comparison to others is what really bothers us. Anytime anybody tries to guide or correct us, the automatic resistance is there because we compare ourselves to them. And we do not like to be compared to them or to anyone else. So we defend our own position because it is so natural to compare ourselves among ourselves. That's why it is so hard for human beings to accept another human being as a teacher, as a guide, as a preacher, if you will, or whatever. It is contrary to our nature. We just don't like to be guided, led, directed by anyone else. We want self guidance, self-rule, to do it because we want to do it, not because anyone tells us. So if we are to accept the teaching, the guidance, direction of teachers that God might have provided, there has to be a certain level of humility and spiritual poverty involved. Now, Paul spoke of that quite frequently. Some, he he complimented because they were humble servants who recognized their great need spiritually, and others he had strong difficulties with and wrote very strong letters to because they were full of pride and self, idolatry and vanity. You can see that contrast clearly throughout all of his preaching and teaching. Some he came to with meekness and humility, and others he had to come to in power and might and strength in some way, reach those people. There is a scripture that says, some you have mercy on, treating them with compassion, others you jerk out of the fire. You have to somehow figure out which person needs what. Sometimes mercy and compassion is needed, and sometimes you've got to jerk them out of the fire, which requires a certain level of violence or power, strength.
All right, chapter 21, verse 4. There's a lot of Proverbs along these lines. Chapter 21, verse 4. A high look, a proud heart, and the plowing of the wicked is sin. If we maintain pride in our hearts, it is a sin. It is a sin to be proud of your wife or husband. It is a sin to be proud of your children. It is a sin to be proud of your city, your state, your country, your world. It is a sin before Almighty God to be proud of anything. Pride is something God hates in any form. I don't know how to put it any plainer than that. There is a world today that is arising that is run by the proudest being in the universe. He deceives the whole world, and he is the present ruler of this evil world. Now, despite God separating the languages, the Tower of Babel, when men rose up in pride and tried to build a tower to heaven, God scattered them around the world so that by virtue of language they would become enemies and not be able to work together. Satan is trying to countervene that. He is trying to now unite all men under one global government and set up a millennium on this earth. A counterfeit of that which Almighty God has planned. But God laughs them to scorn, he says in many scriptures, and he is going to tear them a whole new world. Their pride will be completely destroyed. It is going to take a great tribulation. It is going to take world war. It is going to take Armageddon. It is going to take the seven last plagues. And most of mankind destroyed. Six and a half billion down to, I think, 100 million, as Daniel seems to indicate. That is an incredible devastation. All the children of pride are going to be made low. And every knee, every knee, will bow before Christ. One way or another. Either bent, willingly, or broken. That's just the way it's going to be. Now that is how much God hates pride. How much do we hate it? How much do we tolerate in ourselves? How humble are we? How deep is our recognition of our spiritual poverty? We've already read that God will revive the meek, the contrite. Those are the ones he wants to work with and be with. Proverbs 28, verse 25. He that is of a proud heart stirs up strife. Didn't I say earlier, anytime we cause division, contention, problems, confusion among the brethren, the pride is involved? It says it right here. He that is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he that puts his trust in the eternal shall be made prosperous. 
Do you trust in God who has all power, all might, all belief, all strength, rather than man who has no strength, and at his best creates confusion and strife because of who he thinks he is? How many people have made the statement, well, just, don't you know who I am? What do you mean I can't come in this party? Don't you know who I am? And then they explain in no uncertain terms just who they am. And probably get kicked out anyway because they're not what they think they are. Take that lame excuse before Jesus Christ someday. Well, why can't I be in your kingdom? Don't you know who I am? I'm one of those Philadelphians. Oh, yeah? Well, that's just not the way I see it. I'm sorry. Now, we need to understand who he is, not try to promote who we are. Now, we might not think we're doing it with God. We're just doing it with men. But God says the way you treat men is how you treat him. That's what the Messiah said there in Matthew 25, I think it is, 24 into 24. Ecclesiastes 7. And here I want uh, verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Patient, willing to be entreated, willing to listen, patient, merciful, kind. That's better than being proud. Pride is rooted in impatience. It is rooted in putting others down or thinking your opinion or you are better than them. Be not hasty in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. There are a lot of people in the church today who are angry. They're angry about what has happened. They're even angry at God in some cases. They're angry at Herbert Armstrong. They're angry. They're just angry. If you're angry, you're a fool. It says so in so many words right here. That's where it rests, the bosom of fools. Better to be patient. Better to be merciful, better to be kind, better to be meek than to be proud. Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2. And here I want verse 12. Isaiah 2, 12. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty, and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. Not almost everyone. There are no exceptions. Everyone that is proud will be made low. Try getting the word pride completely out of your vocabulary. Even the father did not say of his son, Son, I'm proud of you. He said, you are the son in whom I am well pleased. If there were any opportunity to be proud, it could be of our Father in heaven being proud of his son. But he didn't go there. He was well pleased with him. 
There's no place for us to say, I'm proud of you, son. I'm proud of you, daughter. I'm proud of you, Mississippi, or wherever we came from. Why be proud? What's to be proud of? God created Mississippi. God created Wisconsin. God created Canada. God made the continents. God made the earth. God made the universe. What do you have to be proud of? What do I have to be proud of? I was born in Texas. Maybe I have a reason to be proud. I think not. I didn't make Texas. And I don't see anything there to be too proud of anyway. See, it's a, it's a, it's a mental state. It's an attitude of pride in self is what it's a pride in. Proud of California? Why? The only reason we're proud of where we are from is because it's us. Who's to say one part of this earth is better than any other part? It's human beings who build it up to be better because it's part of their empirical self. Pride is selfishness. It is saying... Mine is better than yours. Mine's bigger than yours. Mine's smaller than yours. Whatever it is, it's about self. That's what pride is. And isn't the whole Bible against about getting rid of self? Becoming utter and total slaves to each other. So that our life becomes a living sacrifice. We're sacrificing our time, our energy, our abilities, for the welfare of others. That's what we're called to do. We're to help each other attain salvation through meekness, humility, and love. But see, love may be the greatest thing, but pride is the first thing that constricts and stops love because pride is rooted in self. And selfishness is the opposite of love. Outgoing concern as opposed to self. It's really that simple. It's just hard to deal with because we are all, by nature, selfish. Isaiah 13, verse 11. And I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. The haughtiness of the terrible. Maybe we don't say today, I'm the terrible. There was someone in history that they called Ivan the Terrible. Today we might say, I'm bad. Just a little different slang. I'm bad. Or I'm terrible. Or fear me. Or however you want to put it. It never changes. Might change the word from terrible to bad. But whatever the slang of the day, it's the same attitude. I'm something. God says, you're nothing. Even Jacob is a worm, but you dig out of the ground under a barrel somewhere. The whole of Jacob before God is like a worm. All nations are as one ping drop in a bucket. That's all they are to God. We're not any bigger or better than that. Who's going to counsel God? 
Who will correct him? Who will guide him? Those are the questions he put to Job. Uh, let's go to Malachi 4. Malachi 4. This is all through the Bible. Major theme. Malachi 4, verse 1. For behold, Malachi is a prophetic book for today in the immediate future. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven. God is going to light this place up. He's going to make the whole world like an oven. Ever stick your hand in an oven? Been at 350, 400 degrees for half hour, an hour? You get a pot holder, don't you? You get something to protect yourself from the heat. God's going to heat this world up like an oven. And all the proud, yes, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, says the eternal hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Uses the example of a plant. It's going to burn not only that which is above the ground, but that which goes down into the ground. The roots, everything. Anything that smacks of pride in any way is going to be burned even down to the very roots. It will not survive. You talk about a fiery furnace. What Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into was a little campfire by comparison. He's going to burn the whole world up, and anything that has haughtiness or pride or wickedness will be destroyed. You see, all sin, all wickedness, all evil has as its basis pride. That's what creates it. See, you know good from evil. You know God's Word from Satan's way. So how do you get from this knowledge of God to this action of Satan? Somehow in our minds, we justify what we want to do as okay for now. Well, why did you do this? Have you ever asked that question of your kids? Why did you do this? Can they ever answer that? Can they come up with a good excuse for why they did it? You told them don't do it. They did it anyway. I've heard them come up with some really lame things as I raised my children. Well, Dad, it was an accident. I didn't mean to. One of the commonest ones is, he did it. She did it. They got brothers and sisters there. Now, I've had all my children lined up, and none of them did it to hear them tell it. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. He did, she did, he did. Pass it off on someone else. We, we don't really have any excuses. If we did wickedness, it was because what? We decided in our great wisdom that doing what we feel like doing <coughs> for the moment, for right now, is better than what God tells us to do. Now, we can always repent later, can't we? But right now, I feel this urge, this temptation, and if I give in to it, what am I doing? 
I'm saying that my decision on this is better than God's decision on this. God said don't do it. I'm going to do it anyway. That's idolatry. And it's rooted in selfishness and pride and self-gratification. I hope pride is beginning to take on some meaning for us here. Let's go to the New Testament a bit. Not very many more. Romans 1. Perhaps I should have just read one or two of these and we'd have gotten the message and that would been the end of it and we could have moved on. But uh, God does this all through the Bible, so maybe we need to take a few more. Chapter 1 of Romans, verse 30. Uh, well, let's start in verse 28. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. This was read in the or parts of Romans 1 read the sermonette. People who have decided that their way is better than God's way. They're proud. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, argument, deceit, cancer, Whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful. Who knowing the judgment of God, have a knowledge, understand, and yet what do they do? Not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. Now, doesn't this sound like the society today in our so-called Christian nation? We say that we know God. We say that we love God. We say that we're Christian. And yet, what we just read is what our nation consists of. We know better. But we're idolaters at heart. We're proud and haughty. And we will do what we want to do no matter what. Don't tell me what to do. Is the attitude that goes with selfishness and pride. And God says it is an abomination to him. First Timothy 6, verse 4. Now, I'm going to tie this together with tomorrow's sermon. And I think it is very important as we approach Pentecost because I think there are going to be some things said tomorrow that will be different and will make the specific meaning of Pentecost more real to us and perhaps a couple of pretty startling things need to be said tomorrow. But if we don't have the right attitude going in, they won't mean anything to us as individuals. First Timothy 6, verse 4. Well, verse 30. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing. Proud is equated here with knowing nothing. 
Now, when we're proud of our knowledge, of our abilities, we think we know something, don't we? But he says, if you have pride, you really don't know anything. You really don't even, you haven't gotten to first base. You may think you know something, but if there's pride in your psyche, pride in your mind, pride in your heart, you don't know anything. You haven't gotten to square one. But doting about questions and strife of words, whereof comes envy, strife, fighting, evil surmisings, or motivations that we impute to others. People who are arguing questions and striving over words, God does not have much patience with. And it creates confusion and argument and evil motives imputed. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth. If we're full of pride, ego, and vanity, and proud of our knowledge, we are corrupt, and we are not recognizing real truth. Supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw yourself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. When you were born, you had absolutely nothing. You were in your birthday suit, as we say. You had nothing but active bowels and lungs, neither of which is appealing. That's all. And when you die... It doesn't matter what you have done on this earth. You just die. And you can take nothing with you. You ain't going anywhere in the first place, so how can you take anything with you? Somebody's going to shove you in the ground and cover you with dirt. They'll dress you because they can't stand to look at, at you laying there in the coffin uncovered. But you have nothing to do with it. You're dead. So whatever you think you were, you suddenly become nothing. And the only thing you can, way you can ever become anything again, if you ever were anything, is if Almighty God resurrects you and gives you eternal, immortal life, then you have something. Now, he says that if you're going to have eternal life and dwell with Him, you must be humble and contrite, poor in spirit, poverty-stricken, and have no pride, but be of a humble and contrite mind and spirit. That is the goal of this boot camp that we're living in, is to humble us. We're still in a spiritual wilderness, aren't we, to some degree or another? And God took ancient Israel into that desert to humble them. Why did not God, who has called us out here into this waste-howling desert, not give us a verdant, productive land? Because He brought us out here to humble us. We were vain. We thought we had it made. 
We thought we had need of nothing. We were spiritually proud. And yet, in God's view, we were naked and wretched and worthless. Not worthy of being in his kingdom because we're still full of vanity. So he brought us out here in this desert to humble us. And the quicker we can see that and accomplish it, the better off we're going to be. I want to read one more, 2 Timothy 3, verse 2, and then we'll go another direction. This know also, that in the last day, perilous times shall come. Now, what is peril? Have you been in peril of life? In your life? I have. I've been in perils of high places, dry places, wet places, upside-down places, dark places. I won't go into details, but there have been many, many times in my life I've faced death. And only by the grace of God, I think, at this point, am I still standing. But he says in these end times, perilous, deadly, dangerous times will come. And what makes them perilous? For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, word breakers or truth breakers, false accusers, backbiters, gossipers, incontinent, that means without self-control. We use it when old people need diapers or babies do, commonly, but it means without self-control. Fierce, angry, despisers of those that are good. Put them down because we can't stand to be compared with some that might be headed toward good. Uh, traitors. Proud, that's what heady means, high-minded. Uh, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Think about that one. How many hours of off time, that is any time that's not sleep or work, do people in America today put into the pursuit of pleasing themselves and pleasures of entertainment? How many hours do we... Let's be specific here. Spend being entertained as opposed to praying and studying. I don't care what form of entertainment it is, whether it be playing golf, fishing, four-wheeling, watching TV, listening to music, playing video games, computer games. I mean, the list could go on and on. How many hours do Americans today, and we in particular, spend on pleasing or entertaining the self compared to worshiping, praying, studying, fasting, meditating on the things of God. Go through your day, hour by hour. I wonder how many people pray, honestly, 30 minutes a day. Maybe we should start, who'll bid 15 minutes? Half hour, hour, 
How many spend 15 minutes, 30 minutes, hour a day studying God's Word? How many hours a day do we have the TV on, the radio on, or whatever pleasure or distraction we enjoy? Count the hours. And if you count the hours, make a realistic assessment of whether you are a lover of pleasures more than a lover of God or not. I dare say with every one of us, that's a tough test to take. Having a form of godliness, yeah, we're here, we're here to serve God. Well, how many hours do we serve God a day and how many hours do we serve self a day? Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such, turn away. This world is in a very perilous condition. It is about to be destroyed by God for the attitudes and actions we just read. And we will be destroyed with it if we are proud or have a high look or if we are in this category of what Paul is talking about to Timber of the year. Is ours only a mere form of God or do we truly put him first? Are we idolatrous or are we not? If we love pleasure and taking care of self and the enjoyment of self more than we love God, then we are idolaters because we're putting self ahead of God. That is idolatry. Let's go to Job 2. Or no, Job 22 I want. Job 22, verse 29. When men are cast down... Then you shall say, there is lifting up, and he shall save the humble person. We're going to see now the poverty in spirit and the right attitude as opposed to these attitudes we've been examining so uncomfortably in the last half hour or so. Maybe it's been an hour nearly. Well, not quite. But God will raise up the humble. He shall save the humble person. Now, that already sounds better to me. Doesn't it to you? I want to be saved. I want God's favor. Maybe I better be humble. Maybe I should be humble before God and man. I not lift myself in pride comparing myself to others or to God. Psalm 34, 18. Psalm 34, verse 18. The eternal is near to them that are of a broken heart and save such as be of a contrite spirit. This begins to truly define what Christ said there in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poverty-stricken in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Eternal delivers him out of them all. We are meek and contrite. We're going to receive the slings and arrows of men. We're going to have trials and tribulations, but God will deliver us out of them all. Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57. 
And here I want verse 15. For thus says the high and lofty one that inhabits eternity. We've already read this. I, I was out of context. But let's look at it from the positive standpoint now. Whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite ones. This context is talking about the remnant of his faithful people at the end of the age. That's who it's talking about in the entire context. We should know that by now. So right now, those who are humble and contrite are the ones God will dwell with. He says very clearly in Revelation that those who are sinners and filthy and unclean will not be allowed inside the holy city. But if we're humble and contrite, that means we're obedient too, doesn't it? Because we humble ourselves before the word of God. And we live by every word of God. Those are the ones that Christ and the Father will dwell with. Isaiah 66, verse 2. This one we probably know by memory. <clears throat> oh, I turned to 62. No wonder I had problems. Isaiah 66, verse 2. <clears throat> all those things has my hand made, speaking of the heavens and the earth, and all those things have been, says the Eternal, but to this man will I look. Now he compares the heavens and the earth and everything that God has created in the universe. And he makes the comparison between all these majestic things and says, for all those things is my hand made, and all those things have been, says the Eternal, but to this man will I look. He's turned his face from the church right now, but he's going to turn and look back again, and here is where he's going to look. Even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, poor in Spirit, and trembles at my word, who is in such awe of this book and the words God has put in it, that he trembles before it. How often, how easy is it for us in a moment of temptation or desire for this, that, or the other thing that we can so easily sweep the words of God aside and eat our ding-dong or snicker or coke or imbibe in lust or pornography or whatever it might be that we desire, small to great. How easy is it for us to sweep the words of God aside in our pride of the moment in appeasing or entertaining the seventh? So very easily. He says, hear no evil, see no evil. And yet we can brush those words aside and go watch a movie filled with evil. Adultery, fornication, lying, murder, stealing. It's the theme of the movie. But we'll sweep God's words in Isaiah aside and go watch it. So very easily. Now, do we tremble at His word when we do those things? I don't think so. We're putting self ahead of God, and that is idolatry, and idolaters will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I was going to get off that side, wasn't I? 
Let's move on. Psalm 31. Psalm 31. Verse 1. In you, O Eternal, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be you my strong rock for an house of defense to save me. This is a prayer we could pray. We now have a town without walls, literally organized as a town. Will we look to man to defend us? Will we look to God to defend us? Will we call to him? Pull me out of the net that they have laid privately for me, for you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. This is a prayer we're going to be needing to pray when the whole world is against us, and it's coming. I have hated them that regard lying vanities, but I trust in the eternal. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversity. God isn't unaware of what we're going through down here. In fact, he brought us out here to humble us, just like he did Israel. You have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a large room or a place of safety, a safe place. That's in Jameson Fawcett and Brown's commentary on this verse. Have mercy upon me, O Eternal, for I am in trouble. My eye is consumed with grief. Yes, my soul and my belly. Here's an attitude, David had, <coughs> of poverty and spirit. For my life is spent with grief, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones are consumed. If we truly have an attitude of spiritual poverty, these are the feelings that we will have. This is the way we'll feel about ourselves compared to God. I was reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors, and a fear to my acquaintance. They that did see me without fled from me. I am forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel, shattered on the ground. When Christ said, of myself, I can do nothing. This is the attitude he had. When he hung on that stake and was humiliated because of our sins, as it says in Hebrews, he despised the shame. and took upon himself our spiritual lack and our spiritual poverty. He was totally humble, did not answer a word, was like a sheep to the slaughter, looking down with sad, troubled eyes and saying, Forgive them, Father. They really don't know what they're doing. That is the attitude of our Savior and our soon-coming king and ruler. And he wants us to be, how? Just like him. We are to walk as he walked. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Let's go to Psalm 51. 
Here is a man who had lifted himself up in pride, taken his neighbor's wife, had him killed. He had cast aside the words of God. He had allowed himself through lust, covetousness, and idolatry to become consumed in an attitude that was ungodly. And through a series of events, he came to realize what he had done. How devastating, how awful, how terrible it really was. He had found a way to justify it in his mind. He had found a way to cozy up to it and make it okay to do. He didn't realize how far off base he was. As a recent song was put out, I know what I'm feeling, but what was I thinking? I know what I was feeling, but what was I thinking? That's what David came to. He had found a way to give in to his feelings, and then when it got from bad to worse, he murdered. He did not go unpunished. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. He felt pretty low here came to put his case before God. He didn't justify himself, didn't defend himself, and say, you know, God, I really am king of Israel, and, and I'm a pretty good man, and, and I do most things right. You know, I, I, I kind of got messed up here, but, you know, I'm okay, and I, I know it couldn't be anything but in your heart to forgive me. He could have come proud, vain, and egocentric, and God would not have been willing to forgive him. But he truly humbled himself and realized his spiritual poverty when he realized what it was that he had done. According to your tender mercy, not because he deserved it, but because of God's mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Have you ever taken a shower or a bath where you just sort of rinsed off, didn't get thoroughly clean? one reason I don't like bathtub baths. I get in and I'm filthy, and then when I get out, i got a ring around me and around the tub. I didn't get clean. The ring is on me. He wanted thoroughly cleansed, have it all rinsed off. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. I can't forget it. I can't get away from it. It's on me day and night. I finally realize what I did, Father. Please forgive me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Well, Uriah was dead. Bathsheba had been shamed before all of Israel. Isn't that a sin against them? No, not ultimately. The real sin was against God's way, God's word, God himself. Those people were the victims, but they were not the ones that the sin truly was against. The sin really is against God and His way. Those whom we walk on, trounce on, sin against here on this earth, really are only the victims. That you might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. I wonder what it would take for us to have this attitude not only before God, but before each other. Somebody catches us up on something, however trivial or minor it might be. 
our attitude of pride sometimes jumps up before we even realize what has happened because we're certainly not going to take it from a human being. Well, that shows that there is still pride there, that we want to lift ourselves above another human being. God says that's a no-no. We're to love others as ourselves, and we're to esteem others higher than ourselves. Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David says, back to my very wrist. I haven't been worth a thing from the day I was born, or even before I was born. As my mind was forming in the womb, all this evil was being formed. I haven't been worth a thing from infancy. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you shall make me to know wisdom. He was beginning to learn wisdom. What is wisdom? The very beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, to tremble at his word. To this man will I look, to him that is of a contrite and humble spirit, and trembles at my word. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. doesn't matter how broken we are, in spirit or in bone we can be made to rejoice again. God is going to revive the contrite and humble ones. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He realized he had become proud, vain, egocentric, selfish, and presumptuous, and idolatrous. And he wanted to change his attitude. That's what it's all about, is change of attitude. That's what we're here for. To change from being spiritually proud to being spiritually humble, meek, and contrite, and fearing every word of God. That's a tough process. It takes some deep introspection of our inner parts, as David was doing here. Cast me not away from your presence. Now, does that sound like someone who thinks he deserves to be in God's presence and in his kingdom? No, he realizes it's a privilege, not a right. And because of what he was, he knew he needed to plead his case in humility. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your free spirit. We need to pray that God will give us a joy and an excitement about salvation and restore us with his spirit, which is free. It's there. If we will put him ahead of self, him ahead of our own pleasures. Then will I teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted, converted to you. See, we would like to be teachers, and we're all puffed up maybe with the knowledge we have and vain and proud of it, but this humility has to come, ideally, before we're ever put in a position to teach or guide or lead others. It humbled Paul. It humbled David to realize that they'd been put in that position, and yet they were not what they ought to be. Paul said, as an apostle, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? 
Now, there was a man who could have said, I'm a leading apostle now, and I'm the apostle of the Gentiles. All you people better bow down and straight and do what I say, polish my boots, carry my golf clubs. Polish my car and buy one just like it. Wrong. No, he said, oh, wretched man that I am. He had an attitude of poor in spirit. Poverty-stricken, even though he was an apostle. And he recognized that he still had sins and attitudes that needed change, just as David is saying here. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, you God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Not mine, yours. O Lord, open you my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you desired not sacrifice, else would I give it. You delight not in burnt offering. People sometimes want us to go back to... Animal sacrifices, particularly, they'll say, at Passover. What an affront to God. No way. God is not pleased with that. He's pleased with a humble and contrite heart. Someone who is willing to sacrifice himself daily as a living sacrifice, even as Christ sacrificed himself while he lived and in death. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The very basis of the first teaching of our Lord in that mountain where he began to teach his disciples. That is the attitude God is looking for. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion and build you the walls of Jerusalem. Brethren, we are poised right now in history to build the walls of Jerusalem as towns without walls. We are here for God to bless Zion in His good pleasure. This is a now prayer for you and me. And this is a now attitude that we must have. What God is looking for is not burnt offering or a lamb at Passover. He is looking for a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. He is looking for a group of people who are poor in human spirit, but rich in the treasures of God in his free spirit. As someone told me the other day, I don't care about physical gold. I have all the gold in the world and the truth of God true statement. That's what it's all about. Building treasure in heaven and recognizing the value of the words of God. You want to please God? He says, have this attitude. Ask God to bless Zion and build the walls of Jerusalem. Then shall you be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon your altar. But these are spiritual sacrifices today, not animal sacrifices. What God's looking for. Psalm 147.3. I'm going to hasten along here. may have to skip over a few. Why do I take the time to go through all the ones that kick us in the behind and then have to cut short the good ones? Psalm 147.3. He heals the broken in heart and binds up their wounds. How many people on earth want a broken heart? 
How many songs do they write about I'm getting over another broken heart or whatever, however it might go? Now, we, we want a broken heart. We want our heart broken because we are not like God. And that should break our heart and have us turn to Him in love. Proverbs 15. Verse 3. The eyes of the eternal are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Is that the one I wanted? 15, 13 is what I wanted. A merry heart makes a cheerful countenance, but by sorrow of the heart, the spirit is broken. You know, we can go through through life full of laughs, full of joy, perhaps denying what is really going on. But if you really want to be what God wants you to be, you have to go through sorrows because that is what breaks the spirit and the heart. That's why many are the afflictions of the righteous. And through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God because God wants us broken-hearted, contrite, and humble. He doesn't want us proud, vain, and egocentric and selfish. And it is through pressure and trouble that the spirit, the human spirit, is broken. And then we can begin to imbibe of the true spirit of God. That's what it takes. Well, sometimes I've heard people say, well, you're having trouble, you must not be obeying God. No, if you are seeking to obey God, you'll have more trials, troubles, and tribulations thrown on you to make sure your heart is broken and you become humble and contrite and poor in spirit. That's the process that is required. If somebody's going along fat, dumb, and happy and not having any troubles, maybe they're the ones that are spiritually, really, truly in trouble. The one who is having trials, troubles, tribulations, and sorrows is one who hopefully is learning humility. Jesus wept. He was a man of sorrows. Do you want to be like Christ, or do you want to be fat, dumb, and happy? He was a man of sorrows when he was on this earth. All right, let's... I'll skip that. Let's cut straight through to Zephaniah 2. We went there in the sermonette, but I want to go there briefly now. Chapter 1 deals with the financial collapse that is about to come on our country and upon all Israel and the troubles that are just beginning. And in that context, he says, Gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O nation not desirable. We will not be desirable to this world because we will be seeking God, and we have not been desirable to God because we have been vain and full of of, uh, ego and Laodiceanism. So he says, Gather yourselves together before the decree bring forth. What decree? The decree of financial collapse in chapter 1. Before the day passes the chaff, before the fierce anger of the eternal come upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger come upon you. So he tells us to gather ourselves together before this happens. And then what does he say? Here's the attitude in which it is to be done. It doesn't do any good to gather ourselves if we're still full of pride, selfishness, ego, and puffed up in knowledge and vanity or selfishness in any form or fashion. Won't do any good. You can 
hold hands in pride and go down together. But if you're, pri- if you're prideful, you're going down. That's all there is to it. So, the gathering has to be done according to the attitude of verse 3. Seek you the eternal. We'll find that in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 too. All you meek of the earth. It won't do any good to gather ourselves together unless it is done in meekness and poverty of spirit, which have worked his judgment. Those of you who have been seeking to follow God, come together with a meek attitude, seek righteousness, seek meekness, it may be you shall be hid in the day of the Lord's anger. Now that ties together with Matthew 24, which says, hope or pray that you be accounted worthy to escape these things. So he tells us to gather ourselves together, and ultimately, if we have the right attitude, even here, then maybe God will save us. We might be accounted worthy. Gathering does not do any good unless we come to have the right attitude. Micah 6. We all know Micah 4 tells us to leave the city and go dwell in the field. Maybe we have reasons why we're not humble enough to accept that. Chapter 6 of Micah, verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the eternal require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That echoes what we just read in Zephaniah. The Eternal's voice cries to the city, and the man of wisdom shall see your name. Hear you the rod, and who has appointed it? God is going to give the rod to some people here in the near future, and we better be ready to listen and learn from them. Otherwise, we'll be in trouble. We're here to to love mercy and to walk humbly and be willing to be taught by those whom God sends to teach us. Now let's contrast Revelation 3. I think we all recognize at this point that we haven't been quite the Philadelphians we thought we ought to have been. And there are are those who will say, well, there's no criticism of the Philadelphians at all. Well, if they are fine and nothing's wrong with them, why does it say, just like it does to the others, overcome? and you'll be in my kingdom. But let's contrast what he says to the Laodiceans here. Verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I would you were cold or hot. I wish you'd watch TV all the time instead of just part of the time. That is, more than you pray to me, or study my words. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. That pictures barf, vomit. Because you say, I am rich, this is by attitude, see? I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and know not that you are wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked. If we're going to be poor in spirit, we have to recognize our poverty spiritually, our blindness, and our nakedness. <clears throat> we cannot hold forth and think that we deserve anything. 
counsel you to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that you may be rich, and white raiment, that you may be clothed, and that the shame of your nakedness do not appear, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. You've got to see how poor we are compared to God and what He wants of us. <coughs> now, let's notice Revelation 11 in closing. Revelation 11. Here God gives a very, very important job to a couple of people and those who are with them. <coughs> they don't have power at the beginning, but when the job requires it, verse 3, it says, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Now, what attitude will they come in? I'll give power, and they will come and preach in sackcloth. Sackcloth and ashes meant humbling. It meant spiritual poverty. It meant mourning. I don't think that when that witness goes out to the world, it is going to be, we are the only ones in the true church. We are the only righteous people on earth. We are the only... We? No, it's all about He. It's not we. It's not we're the greatest work. We're the only ones that have proclaimed. We're the only ones that have the knowledge. No. The attitude will be, God Almighty is God. And you should obey God. You should follow the words of Almighty God. You are breaking God's laws. The trouble that is coming on you today is because you do not worship the true God. You're worshiping a false God over here who says He's Christ. And He's not. It will be powerful. They'll be given power. But the attitude is going to be meekness and humility. Not that they think that they are anything. So you see, all these scriptures we're talking about are for now. God is going to resist the proud, and He's going to give grace to the humble. He talks about giving grace in the desert, grace in the wilderness, to those who will be humble and meek. We may see some of that tomorrow. Today is preparation for tomorrow, because tomorrow is Pentecost. It's a very important day in the plan of God and I think there's some areas in it that we need to apply more specifically than we have in the past. But that's another story, and I'm out of time today. We'll get to that tomorrow.